the nature, government, and function of the church, a reassessment. 2001, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England. Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. 3. The Government of the Church It is clear from Scripture that the New Testament Church was governed by elderships, that is, councils of elders, Acts 30, 14, 23, and James refers to the church as a synagogue when he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, etc., James 2.2, 2, the word translated assembly here is synagogue, from which the word synagogue is derived. The Christian church is thus based not on a temple model presided over by priests, but on a synagogue model ruled by elders. The New Testament Church derived its form of government from the pre-monarchial societal structure of Israel as a nation, not from the structure of the Old Testament religious cultus. The Jewish synagogue in the first century was precisely the Jewish nation organized on the local level for social purposes and religious purposes other than those associated with the temple cultus, but not for political purposes since it was an occupied nation. There were, of course, and had to be, some basic differences between the church and the synagogue. For example, the church is not an ethnic community. Its elders, therefore, were not the heads of the great or influential families and clans of a particular community, as would probably have been the case in the Jewish synagogue. The church is a community of faith that does not recognize national or ethnic racial boundaries as a criterion for membership, breeding and ancestry as a criterion for leadership. Its elders were, therefore, chosen by the congregation from among those members who were mature in the faith and of sound doctrine, Acts 14.23, 1 Timothy 3.1-7, Titus 1.5-9. There are, of course, serious disagreements between believers on this point of church government. The principles of church government set forth in this essay, however, can be applied in the main to Episcopal, Congregational and Presbyterian churches. My primary concern is with church governors, whether they are called elders and chosen by the congregation or priests and appointed by a bishop or deacons or ministers, etc. The important point is how they rule, how they govern the Church of Christ and what they teach. The issue is the form of government. The issue of the form of government is secondary, in my judgment, to how government is practised. There are priorities in the Christian life and in the government of the Church. I believe that the character of Church government is 
whether it is a godly church government, is more important than the form of church government. My concern primarily is with the basic principle of church government set forth in Scripture, which are practicable in Episcopal, Congregational and Presbyterian churches, where there is the willingness and commitment to make them work. I shall consider church government under four heads. 1. The nature. 2. Form. 3. Authority. and 4. Election of church governments. 1. The nature of church governments. Elders, that is, church leaders, whatever they might be called, rule the church first and primarily by teaching God's word. Second, they govern by pastoring the flock. Pastoral activity, counselling, advice, personal encouragement, exhortation, rebuke where necessary and moral support flows out of teaching and, therefore, the two should not be separated. It has been common in Presbyterian churches for a distinction to be made between ruling and teaching elders. This distinction has been taken too far and it is at least doubtful whether the primary proof text supporting it, 1 Timothy 5.17, actually means what it is so often thought to mean. All elders are to be teaching elders, 1 Timothy 3.2, 2 Timothy 2.24, Titus 1.9. Some may excel more in gifts of administration than others, and may therefore devote more time to such things. Others may be particularly gifted in teaching and spend more time expounding the word. But all are to be teachers. Pastoral care cannot come from one who does not understand nor is able to teach the word of God to those in need of help. I have heard it said that such and such is not a good teacher, but he is an excellent pastor. This is Nonsense. What will happen when someone comes to such a pastor with a serious problem? Will he say, Oh, well, I'm afraid I cannot explain what the Bible says about this to you, so I suggest you do this. Such is the logic of the silly idea that someone may be a good pastor, but not a good teacher. The pastoral ministry should flow out of the teaching ministry. It, If it does not, there is a problem, and the answers given by such pastors to those who come to them with pastoral problems will most likely not be biblical answers. If an elder is not able to teach, he cannot counsel his flock properly according to biblical principles. In fact, this is what is wrong with so many churches. Their pastors and ministers are ignoramuses who know little of biblical doctrine and are unwilling to learn it so that they can teach and pastor their flocks properly. That is, they are lazy as well as ignorant. Teaching and pastoring go together. Ephesians 4.11 They must not be separated too far. Although, in a sense, it is true 
that one can be a teacher without being a pastor. It is not true that one can be a pastor without being able to teach. The ability to teach God's word is essential to pastoral care and the principal part of it. Third, the government of the church rules by determining matters of church policy where necessary. Elders rule on matters that affect the life of the church and cannot be left to the individual Christian's predilection or witness. For example, the form of service or liturgy, the content and structure of the teaching program, the church's witness to the world as an institution, for instance, its stand on issues over which society seeks its advice or concerning which the church must bear testimony. Abortion, for example. However, all such rule is to be strictly in accordance with the word of God. This function of government is not a catch-all for tyrannical elders and bishops to rule like monarchs or military juntas in a totalitarian fashion over the lives of the members of their congregations. Fourth, the government of the church is to rule by maintaining discipline when it breaks down in the areas of doctrine and morals. But the major part of government does not consist in disciplining the congregation. The disciplining of members is what happens, or should happen, when something goes wrong. We are not to see error as a major drain on the church's activities. Rather, through the ministry of the word and pastoral guidance, Error in doctrine and practice is to be avoided. Discipline, therefore, is the last option open for rooting out error. It is not the major part of the government of the church. It is necessary on occasions, and the machinery must be in place and in working order, so to speak. But it should not characterise the church's life, nor the tenor of its government. If it does... Something is going wrong with the teaching and pastoral ministry of the church. This may, perhaps, be because of the way the gospel is presented. For example, by watering down the message of God's word in order to get the church building full on Sundays, the ministry may attract those who have no intention of living the Christian life according to God's word. They come to church for entertainment, since this is what the church has promised they will get if they come. Problems arising from such non-committed people should not go as far as having to be resolved at the disciplinary level. They should be dealt with at the teaching, pastoral and membership levels. Teaching, primarily, and pastoring, which involves both teaching and individual practical application of doctrine, and to a secondary extent policy-making, are the main aspects of the ongoing government of the church This is entirely positive in character, whereas the exercise of church discipline is a negative function of church government. Fifth, it needs to be stressed that elders or church leaders, whatever their title, do not rule the lives of the members of their congregation. They rule the church, which has a limited, though fundamentally important, function in man's life. Their rule ends at the boundaries of the church's God-ordained function and 
must always be in conformity with God's revealed word. No church member is obligated by God's word to obey church rulers except where those two conditions are fulfilled, that is to say, where their rule is within the God-ordained boundaries of church life and in conformity to God's word. Thus, the government of the church in the main is to be characterised as a ministerial function. The government of the church is not magisterial in nature. That is, it does not execute God's judgment on the sinner as the state executes God's judgment on the criminal in the temporal order, but rather declares God's word. It is so even in excommunication, since the church's judgment is only bound in heaven if it is in accordance with God's word, and even then it is God, not the church, who executes judgment in accordance with his own righteousness. This is not to say that there is not a juridical element in the government of the church, that is, the need for courts to be convened when things go wrong to determine difficult matters of doctrine and practice, disputes between members, and to discipline those who apostatize in doctrine or morals. The Bible specifically teaches that these matters, if they cannot be resolved on a personal level, are to be dealt with by the convening of church courts and the rendering of judgment according to God's word. Matthew 18, 15-17, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-4 But this only happens when things go wrong. It is not to be the norm. The church is to aim higher than that. The church leadership is to aim at governing the church through teaching, preaching and pastoral care. Only where these fail to maintain discipline and order are courts to be convened. It is not to be the norm. The church is to aim higher than that. The church leadership is to aim at governing the church through teaching, preaching and pastoral care. Only where these fail to maintain discipline and order are courts to be convened. When order does break down, courts are necessary and proper, but they are not to be the norm. They are rather a remedy for failure to be applied when the normal means of governing the church through the teaching and pastoral side of its ministry is ineffective. There is a juridical element to church government but it is not to be seen as a major method of ruling. It should not characterise church government. If it does, this indicates that something is going wrong somewhere else, that something is going wrong somewhere else in the government of the church. The extensive use of church discipline reveals a failure in the church's primary ministry, not greater vitality. The nature of church government is thus ministerial, not magisterial. This is important to remember. If the church gets this the wrong way round, if elders see government of the church primarily as magisterial, with ministry taking a subservient role, the church will end up in excessive authoritarianism and ecclesiastical popery. Such things are, and have been, common in the history of the church. It has been a problem in Episcopalian churches, prelacy, in 
Presbyterian churches. New presbyter is but old priest writ large, said Milton, and among independent churches. It has also been a common problem among charismatic groups. It is true that, by and large, the problems of church government faced by the majority of free churches today, at least in England, this may not be true in the USA, are not the problems of overbearing and tyrannical church officers, but rather the problems of the congregational variety, that is, anarchy, and the tyranny of the majority vote in church meetings. But among many churches and groups who generally do recognise the problems associated with democratic-type church governments, there has been a swing to the opposite error of excessive authoritarianism. This is a problem that church leaders should be aware of and seek to avoid. Where the magisterial dominates over the ministerial in church life, there is the danger, even probability, of a pathological condition developing in which a few exercise tyrannical control over the congregation. This is a terrible sin. Christ condemned such tyranny in the church and specifically taught that leadership in his church is not to be characterized by such an attitude. Matthew twenty twenty four to 28 We must remember that Christ died to set his people free, not to bring them into a new kind of bondage under elders or bishops. Freedom can only exist under God's law, not man's law or even church law, that is, man-made canon law and the rulings of elders that have no basis in the Bible. Church government is ministerial, not magisterial, that is, it ministers God's word. When it ceases to do this, it abdicates its true purpose under the gospel, and therefore its authority is no longer binding. This has been a problem in churches that have focused on and prioritised the authority of church officers, the status of the clergy and their powers over the congregation. When the magisterial element begins to dominate over the ministerial to the point where it is suggested that the sermon or teaching side of the church service should be minimal, a homily, so that people will not be divided by teaching in the church service and that the teaching should be done outside the church service, the church is in serious trouble. The result is a failure to equip the church for its task of service, since the principal means that the Holy Spirit uses to equip the church for service, the word of God, is de-emphasized in the life of the church. The same thing happens in charismatic churches when teaching is abandoned in favor of worship services that consist purely of shared emotional catharsis. Such churches fail to equip the saints for their task of service in the world. The church becomes a cult in which the faith revolves around a shared esoteric existential experience that can only have meaning for the initiated and has no value or effect outside the group and meeting. That is, it bears no fruit in terms of service because it does not equip the participants for service 
but rather withdraws them from the arena in which this service is to be performed. The world, this is essentially inward-looking. But what happens when teaching is relegated to an optional extra in the life of the church? In such a situation, the church cannot be led through the ministry of the word because this is seen as divisive, which of course it is and is meant to be. Luke 12, 49-53 As a result, the church has to be led through a disciplinary regime, an ecclesiocracy in which the clergy start taking control over the lives of the members of the congregation instead of teaching them how to live in submission to God's word. This has been a problem in both charismatic and non-charismatic churches. The common factor in both types of church is the de-emphasis of God's word and the emergence of a spiritual elite who seek to exercise an all-pervasive control over the congregation. This is not the biblical model. Church ministers are to equip, not control, their congregations. It is self-government, according to God's word, that teachers and pastors are to inculcate in their congregations. The aim of the ministry is to lead the congregation through teaching and pastoral care into the maturity of faith that enables such self-government to flourish. Self-government is the foundation of all godly government in state, family and church. For example, it is church members who must elect elders in the first place. Without the development of self-governing, without the development of self-government according to God's law among the members of the congregation, godly church governments cannot be elected since the maturity and wisdom of the congregation will be determinative in choosing church rulers. Leadership of the church primarily through the use of disciplinary measures, is unbiblical. It inverts the correct order. The government of the church should be ministerial and primarily positive through the teaching work of the ministry. That is where the elders are to labour hard and spend most of their time. Acts 6, 2-4, 1 Timothy 5, 17. This is ministry not magistracy. If teaching and doctrine are considered secondary by the church leadership, those who are not believers will not be challenged over their unbelief and sin at the outset. They may join the church for its social activities, etc. But then, because they do not understand what the Christian faith requires of them and are not prepared to conform to God's law when informed of its demands upon them, Lack of self-discipline and breakdown of order in the church become problems that have to be dealt with by the disciplinary procedure. If the church establishes a biblical teaching program at the outset, however, such would have had to face their sin and repent or else not join the church in the first place before such disciplinary problems develop. The Word of God is there precisely to do this sifting of the goats from the sheep. When it is denied this function, 
because it is watered down or relegated to an optional extra in order to fill up the church building on Sunday mornings, the sifting has to be done by leaders using the disciplinary procedure. But this is to stand the biblical order on its head. It is often also an attempt by men to claim the power that belongs to God, which is exhibited through the preaching and teaching of the word. 2. The Form of Church Governments We have seen above that the Church is always a local institution. See pages 12 and 37. This necessarily means that in the institutional Church there is a great deal of decentralization. This point is especially pertinent to Reconstructionist churches, since it is an area where many Reconstructionists have not applied important principles that they consider essential in other areas of societal life. For example, for example, in Reconstructionist circles and literature, much fuss is made, and rightly so in my judgment, about the illegitimacy of the top-down, centralised bureaucratic power exercised by the modern state. Such centralization and concentration of political and economic power in the hands of the state is abominated by Reconstructionists. Political and economic power and authority should be decentralized as much as possible, and this is a principle that is protected by the Eighth Commandment, which forbids the amassing of economic power, wealth by the state through high levels of taxation. However, when it comes to the church, this principle seems to have been abandoned and churches that contravene this principle of decentralization of power are popular. The result is that individuals and families are subjected to highly regimented control from above by church authorities who seem to think that because they are appointed as ruling elders, they have a right to lord it over their flock and rule on matters that Christ never put within their jurisdiction. It seems to be thought by some that, since the Bible does not give specific instructions about some things and leaves open a number of possibilities about the way Christians may act, elders can rule on these matters and bind their congregations rather than leaving Christ's people with the liberty that the Bible gives them. But this is a betrayal of the trust given to elders who should rather be encouraging the development of self-government according to biblical principles among the flocks to which they are given as pastors. This is a serious problem in the Reconstruction movement, which will lead, and has in some instances already led, to grave excesses. In church, as well as state, authority should be decentralised as much as possible, both within denominations and within churches themselves. This principle of decentralization of power does not mean, however, that each church should be totally independent from other churches and that there should be no organizational or juridical connection between them. The notion that each church is totally independent juridically from all other churches is clearly not biblical. The truth, the biblical position, lies between these two extremes. There clearly were synods of a kind in Scripture. The Synod of Acts 15 met to determine certain issues of doctrine and practice. 
A number of points arising from this text need to be considered. A. The Synod met at Jerusalem. This fact does not mean that the Jerusalem Church should be considered as the ultimate authority, the metropolitan see, so to speak, within the early church, nor that its elders were prelates, as with the Church of Rome, though it may indicate a certain priority of the Jerusalem Church as the fons et origo, humanly speaking, of the growing church dispersed throughout the Jewish and Greco-Roman world. With the destruction of Jerusalem, this priority ended. Probably it ended before this effectively, or at the very least was severely compromised as a result of the growing Gentile churches established by Paul, as I shall argue below. There is no biblical evidence or reason to suppose the eldership of the Church of Rome or of any other church to have superseded the eldership of the Church of Jerusalem with divine sanction. The principle of an appeal to a synod drawn from elders of local churches remains valid, however, as an abiding principle of church government. Although Jerusalem was the mother church to whose eldership appeal was made in Acts 15, it does not therefore necessarily follow that the elders of the Jerusalem church would always carry the day and rule definitively with the other churches simply submitting to their rule as authoritative. Even granted a certain priority to the Jerusalem church, therefore, it did not operate on the Roman prelatical model. An instance of how the twelve apostles themselves, the pillars of the church, Galatians 2.9, and the Jerusalem eldership had to submit to the Gentile church is given by Paul, whose apostleship did not fit the criteria laid down by the apostles in Acts 1.21-22. When Paul went up to Jerusalem, ostensibly in a gesture of submission to authority, it was in the event of the apostles at Jerusalem, not Paul, who had to submit by revising their previous criteria for apostleship and accepting Paul and Barnabas into the fellowship of the apostles. Galatians 2, 1-10 This revision of the criteria of apostleship constituted the overturning of a previous ruling by the apostles that was forced upon them by Paul's calling and mission to the Gentiles. This demonstrates that apostolic authority itself was not unbounded or without subjection to the wider authority structure of the churches, united and represented in synod. Apostles did not rule as monarchs or prelates in their sees. They were themselves subject to authority. Their rulings could be appealed to a synod and their practices, where they failed to find warrant in the word of God, could be rejected and rebuked. For example, Paul's rebuke of Peter for causing a schism at Antioch, Galatians 2, 11-20. The authority of the apostles and the eldership of the church at Jerusalem was thus not prelatical, but synodical. That is to say, authority in the church was exercised by elders jointly and not severally. The apostles met with the elders of the Jerusalem church and representatives from the Gentile churches and came to determinations on the matters put to them in conference with those elders and representatives, even to the extent of being obliged to overturn their own 
prior practices and rulings when presented with compelling evidence and arguments from the delegates of other churches. Although the concrete circumstances of the first century situation no longer exist and cannot be recreated, nor would it be right to try to recreate them, nor the priority accorded the Jerusalem Synod transferred to another church synod, which would be a vain attempt to try to recreate the first century situation, the general principles of church government described in the Book of Acts and taught in the New Testament are still relevant and must be applied in the contemporary situation. There should exist, therefore, the possibility of an appeal by the eldership of one church to a synod drawn from the elders of the wider community of churches for guidance and ruling on matters appealed to it. If the rulings of the apostles themselves were subject to synodical authority and revision, a fortiori, bishops, priests and ministers should be subject to the same kind of synodical authority. Even after the development of episcopacy in the early post-apostolic church, bishops were subject to synodical authority, as can be seen clearly from the first four ecumenical councils. b. The Jerusalem Synod was not a church, but a court or council of elders drawn from the churches at Antioch and Jerusalem. It did not engage in the activities that define and constitute the function of a church. Rather, it was an ad hoc council convened to determine matters specifically appealed to it by the church at Antioch. c. Since the synod did not constitute a particular local church, it did not contravene the principle that the church is always a local institution. d. The synod existed by virtue of an appeal from a particular church. It had authority to determine the matters of doctrine and practice appealed to it, and its authority was applicable to the churches because it was a council drawn from the churches. Its authority came from the churches that called it into being. Authority was not imposed from above on the churches, therefore, but granted to the synod by the churches, and this is why the authority of the synod was expected to carry weight. It acted upon commission from a particular church, which is the first object of the authority delegated by Christ to his church. The synod's authority was applicable to the churches because its authority came from the churches. Power and authority thus flow upwards from the churches to synods. Decentralism, not downwards from synods to the churches, prelacy, and, as history teaches, it is possible for presbyteries, as well as individual elders in Presbyterian churches, to act in a prelatical fashion. Indeed, this has been one of the abiding failures of Presbyterianism throughout its history. e. The Synod was not a standing council or committee. There was no ongoing presbytery, but only ad hoc synods. Synods met as need determined. This was a reflection of the judicial system instituted in the Torah, Exodus 18, 17-26, Deuteronomy 1, 9-7. Justa's judicial cases were appealed up to higher courts 
when the matters with which they dealt were too difficult for the local judges to determine, so also in the church, matters that could not be settled at the local level were appealed to a higher court. The important point is that these higher courts met as need determined. They came into existence as a result of an appeal from judges at the local level who could not determine justice without help. Ordinarily, these judges were to deal with matters at the local level. Exodus 18.22, Deuteronomy 1.17 The Acts 15 Synod follows this pattern and provides a paradigm for the Christian Church in all ages. F. Synod did not meet, therefore, to determine and regulate the ongoing normal and teaching, normal life and teaching of the churches. This was done by the apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, and the evangelists, teachers and pastors who built on that foundation, Ephesians 4.11 following. It met only to settle matters that could not be settled at the local level, that is, matters that the churches sought guidance on by appeal to a synod drawn from the churches. That is to say that the synod did not constitute the ordinary government of the church. It did not exist to govern the church on a regular basis, but to address the extraordinary matters of doctrine and practice that the ordinary government of the church, the eldership, could not determine on its own. G. Although the Synod at Jerusalem did not constitute a church, but merely a council drawn from the churches, it did act representatively, just as Parliament does not constitute the nation, but represents the nation and acts for the nation. H. It was the servant of the churches, that is, convened by a particular church to help the church. This fact does not invalidate or weaken its authority, however. The synod was called into being by a particular church. Therefore, the church was to submit to its determinations on the matters appealed to it. See point D above. Provided, of course, these determinations were according to the word of God. I. The fact that the synod's power was derived from the churches that brought it into being does not imply that the synod's authority was not also from God. Likewise today, because this is a scriptural model, the authority of such councils and synods must be seen as coming from God. But this authority does not come directly from God. All authority is mediated by God through his word. This means that authority is always circumscribed by God's word, the Bible. No human authority comes directly from God. Thus, no church is under obligation to obey an apostate council or synod that is not itself subject to the word of God and does not operate within the scripturally defined limits of its jurisdiction and authority, just as no member or family in the church is bound to abide by the illegitimate dictates of the eldership of a particular church. Even the synod is under the authority of God's word, and both the synod itself and the churches that call it into being must ensure that its deliberations conform to God's word. The 
Acts 15 Synod shows us two important The Acts 15 Synod shows us two important principles that have to be held in tension, therefore. First, the Church is always a local institution, and therefore... The Acts 15 Synod shows us two important principles that have to be held in tension, therefore. First, the Church is always a local institution, and therefore, authority is normally decentralised at the local level. Second, in abnormal situations when the Church cannot rule on a difficult matter that is important to the ongoing life of the Church, it is to convene a synod, which is to determine the matters put to it by the Church. This shows, further, that Churches are not totally independent from each other. They are connected, united to each other, because they consist of members of the one body of Christ, which cannot be divided, and have a divinely sanctioned means of calling on each other for help and counsel. Moreover, the principle that the Church is always a local institution, connected to other churches by synods and councils of representatives drawn from the churches, does not invalidate the notion of a national church that is, a national association of churches with a representative council and officers, ministers and even overseers appointed for various purposes, both at the regional and national levels, provided such officers are subject to the authority and sanction of synod, nor the establishment principle, though it may require the modification of that principle as it has been practised historically in Christian nations. Christians need to come to terms with the decentralised, synodical nature of church government. It is a principle that should be practised not only in the state, but in the church also. This brings us to the extent and limits of the authority and power given to those who govern the church. 3. The Authority of Church Governments The authority of the church ministry its teaching and pastoral functions, extends to the doctrine of the whole Word of God. The ministry has the mandate and authority to teach the whole counsel of God, to instruct and encourage, rebuke and admonish all men in all things addressed by the Word of God. The authority and power of the Church to discipline and excommunicate apostates who refuse to repent, the juridical function, extends to faith basic Christian doctrine, and morals, that is, behaviour that is clearly condemned as immoral in Scripture. The authority and power to excommunicate applies only to those issues that involve doctrinal or moral apostasy, that is, where the doctrine held by the offender is a denial of the faith once delivered to the saints, or when his life is immoral, a denial of the faith practically, and he will not repent. Beyond this, the Church is to show tolerance to those who do not come up in every detail to the standard of doctrine and behaviour taught or practised by the ministers or other Church members, which is very often a self-imposed, that is, a self-righteous standard in any case. God's law, not the piety of the pastor and chief spiritual persons in the Church, or that of their wives, is the standard of behaviour required by the Christian faith. 
Paul's teaching on this matter in Romans 14 should be taught by the ministry and taken and taken to heart and applied practically in the church by all members. This limitation on the power of the church to discipline and excommunicate members was maintained by the Westminster Assembly in its Directory of Excommunication. Unfortunately, the modern publishers of the Westminster Assembly's deliberations have thought fit to excise from their editions the Directory for Church Government, Church Censures and Ordination of Ministers, which contains the Directory of Excommunication. This Directory of Church Government was put together in order to provide a practical guide for church government and attempted to accommodate both independents and Erastians. The Directory of Excommunication requires the consent of the congregation for excommunication, a concession that clearly shows the influence of the independents on the Assembly's work. This Directory may seem too unpresbyterian for many modern Reformed Presbyterians, some of whom seem to consider arranging a disciplinary session with the presbytery for their fellow but less consistently Presbyterian brethren, the true sport of pietists. But its balanced emphasis, at least at this point, is a principle that history has proved Presbyterianism, with its never-ending schisms and divisions, could ill afford to ignore. The Directory of Excommunication states quite boldly, Such errors as subvert the faith, as any other errors which overthrow the power of godliness, if the party who holds them spread them, seeking to draw others after him, and such sins in practice as cause the name and truth of God to be blasphemed, and cannot stand with the power of godliness, and such practices as in their own nature manifestly subvert that order, unity and peace, which Christ hath established in his church, those being publicly known to the just scandal of the church, the sentence of excommunication shall proceed according to the directory. But those persons who hold other errors in judgment about points wherein learned and godly men possibly may or do differ, but those persons who hold other errors in judgment about points wherein learned and godly men possibly may or do differ, and which subvert not the faith, nor are destructive of godliness, or that be guilty of such sins of infirmity as are commonly found in the children of God, or being otherwise sound in the faith and holy in life, and so not falling under censure by the former rules, endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and do yet, out of conscience, not come up to the observation of all those rules which are, or shall be, established by authority for regulating the outward worship of God and government of his church. We do not discern to be such against whom the sentence of excommunication for these causes should be denounced. Why is there this difference between the extent of the authority given to the didactic and juridical functions of the church government? Because excommunication is a remedy for correcting an error in the membership of the church. Those who are to be excommunicated should not be in membership since they have denied the faith. One can disagree with the doctrine taught by the ministry on issues that do not involve a denial of the faith. Christians genuinely disagree on many matters that are not essential to salvation. 
their place is thus within the church, not outside it. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by doctrinal perfection or by perfect knowledge. Saving faith is naive. We all come into church immature, needing to grow in knowledge and in our practice of the faith. Lack of knowledge, unless it constitutes a complete vacuum in adults, and misunderstanding, unless it involves a complete denial of the faith, does not mean that a person should not be a member of the church. It simply means that he needs to be attentive to the ministry in order that he might grow. This is so for all believers, including ministers. Furthermore, Christ has bought our liberty with his blood. We are, as believers, free men under God in the church just as much as in the state. Our lives should not be totally regulated by the church any more than by the state. The church authorities may not regulate and control the lives and consciences of church members through the disciplinary procedure. Such tyranny is just as wicked as that exercised by the humanistic state. Rather, the church authorities are to lead the congregation through the ministry of the word and pastoral activity. But if what one believes or does denies the faith, that is a different matter. He should not be part of the church because he is not a member of Christ's body and known to be apostate. He should, therefore, be excommunicated if he refuses to repent. Both the well-being of the church and of the person under discipline is involved in excommunication. The church's well-being is involved since false believers and apostates will exercise a baneful influence upon the church, which may be led astray into immoral practices. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Revelation 2.12-23 The apostate's well-being is involved also, since, as an apostate, he will not enter the kingdom of God, yet if he remains in the church he will not be forced to confront this fact, He needs to be apprised of his true condition and encouraged to repent. But he needs also to be shown that in his present state he is not accepted by God, has no part in the family or household of God, the community of faith, and will face eternal judgment unless he repents. If he is a backslidden Christian, he also needs to be warned of the danger. He needs to understand that he should repent and that, until he does, he will have no part in the kingdom of God, and therefore no part in Christ's church. If someone dies in such a state of unrepentant sin, that is, in a state that warrants his excommunication, he should not be considered to have ever been a Christian, regardless of of any profession of faith he may have made. The Bible teaches not only election and sovereign grace, but the doctrine of perseverance also, Matthew 10, 22. And the backslidden Christian needs to understand this. Thus, excommunication has a pastoral and restorative emphasis, as well as being a means of removing from the community of faith those who have no part in it. But erroneous views and beliefs that are not a denial of the faith and wayward practices that are not subversive of godliness need to be dealt with 
by teaching and pastoral care, by nurturing the believer and helping him to grow in the faith. In knowledge and practice, the two should go together. An erring member of the church who is resistant to this process might not be a true believer, but he cannot be disciplined or excommunicated until he demonstrates his apostasy by his beliefs or behaviour. Those who are true believers, however, however, belong in the community of the church, no matter how they misunderstand things not essential to their salvation. Those who are not of the faith and known to be such because of their denial of the faith in doctrine or practice do not belong in the church and should not be removed. It is thus on the basis of essentials, fundamental doctrine, and on matters of immorality that excommunication is carried out, and then only when all other means have been tried and have failed, whereas the church's didactic function, teaching and preaching the ministry of the word, extends to the whole word of God and all matters with which it deals. The church's jurisdiction, its juridical function, is limited to fundamentals of doctrine and morality. 4. The Election of Church Governments In the New Testament, the rulers of the church were chosen by the congregation from the male heads of households that were mature in the faith and sound in doctrine. In Acts 14.23 we read, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, etc., Compare Acts 2, Acts 6, 2 to 6. The word translated appointed here is caero tonesantes, the aorist participle of the verb giero toneo, meaning to vote for, to elect by a show of hands. This verb was used in classical Greek of the stretching out of one's hand for the purpose of giving one's vote in the Athenian ecclesia, that is, an assembly of all the citizens. Those from whom the rulers of the church were to be elected had to be qualified, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Titus 1, 5-9. Among the qualifications for office listed by Paul is the stipulation that church rulers, elders, must be mature in the faith, since the term elder means an older one, implying wisdom, knowledge, understanding and maturity. The important point for church rulers, however, is maturity in the faith, not simply age, which does not automatically bring maturity of faith and sound doctrine. The requirement that elders must be able to manage their own household and family well shows that those from whom selection is to be made must have already proved their ability to govern before being appointed to the government of the church they must be married heads of households. Once chosen, elders are to govern the church. Their calling to the office of elder is perpetual, ordinarily. Romans 11.29 They should be respected and listened to because they are chosen by the congregation to an office that God has instituted in his word. Their authority is from God, mediated via his word, and thus their authority is always subject to God's word, and they are appointed by the congregation by means of election by the male heads of households. Their calling and appointment by the church is, however, 
or at least should be, a recognition by the Church that they are called by God to be rulers in the Church. Their calling, therefore, as elders is from God and from the Church. When elders are elected and installed in office, the congregation thereby recognises and calls those whom God has already called and gifted. At least this is the way it should be. Government of the Church is not to be by referendum. Members choose their elders and, once elected, the elders rule. The congregation does not vote on every issue of church government. It is for the elders as a council to rule, not the church meeting. The church is not a democracy, though it does have a representative government. Decisions in the church over policy are not made by the congregation. There are two exceptions to this general rule where church government is to be with the consent of the congregation. In the choice of elders and deacons, Acts 14.23, 6, 2-6, and in the matter of excommunication, 2 Corinthians 2.6, compare 1 Corinthians 15.1-4. There is no warrant in Scripture for the anarchy that exists in many congregational and Baptist churches as a substitute for church government. The congregation elects the elders, the elders then govern. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.